If the title of this teaching bothers any of you, know first that it bothered me. And I almost didn't put it up there, but I can't get around it. I'll explain in a few minutes. Let's bow. Father, it seems we we still are of a mindset that goes back two, three, four hundred years of humiliation. That Lord repentance means that we must grovel, and that the idea of your mercy means um, that we must always carry around some kind of shame, and that is so not your heart and it is so untrue as far as the scriptures are concerned and though it's difficult for me even to say it Lord we recognize Jesus that you died that we might be lifted up exalted from the place that we are but the idea of our exaltation Lord before you it it, uh, it feels arrogant and boastful And it's difficult to comprehend. I pray that you would help us to comprehend Jesus who, for our sakes, became poor that we might become rich. Who suffered that we might be saved. Who died that we might be glorified in the glory of Jesus Himself. May we, Lord, comprehend this. And in so comprehending, Father, I pray that it would change our perspective on this journey. And that we would, with joy and confidence and strength, go forward in You. Looking forward to, as as Tom said, the day when You call us home. And until You call us home, may we be witnesses. And once You call us home, may our lives have been lives of witness. Not because we grovel along in the dirt, oh woe is us. But that we are a people with praise on our lips, joy in our hearts at the glory that you have bestowed on us through Jesus Christ. Holy Spirit, I pray that each word will be fed to us, that we might ingest what you have this morning. In truth, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It was a crystal clear summer night in Yosemite, California, the summer of 1980. Two teenage boys lay flat on their backs on sleeping bags, staring up at the sky, contemplating life in the future. I know because I was one of them. The other one was my friend David Greer. And as we lay there just talking about life, that's when the meteor shower began. It was awesome. It was absolutely amazing. One of those moments in life I, I truly will, will never forget. Lying there and all of a sudden David said, Whoa, did you see that? And I had. I mean, you know how falling stars will just catch the corner of your eyes. And then they're gone. And so now I'm watching. And Dave was watching. And there went another one. Whoa, did you see that? And another one. Ah, look at that! And as we sat there, these stars were truly launching across the sky, right and left. It was, it was unbelievable. I'd never seen anything like it in my life. Growing up in Southern California, it's hard to see through the smog. But in Yosemite, we could see it. These stars falling as though flicked by the hand of God. And so, of course, Dave and I, being teenagers, we began to applaud. And we began to have fun with it. And we began to announce it as though it was some kind of an epic movie stretched across the big screen of the heavens. And we were saying things like, The Universe, an epic new movie starring God. Original screenplay, God. Musical score, God. Special effects, God. Directed by, God. Executive producer, God. And we're laughing and clapping and just, and the stars kept falling. But after a while, as the stars continued to fall, we fell silent. It was just too awesome. And again, I'll never forget it. That was 30 years ago. 3,000 years ago, another David, somewhere there in Judea, was looking up at the same stars and proclaiming a song of wondrous praise, Psalm 8. And David said, 
O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth, who have displayed Your splendor above the heavens. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes you have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him? And the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than God. And you crown him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Boy, I I think one of the best songs ever written right there. Kyle and Delich entitled this song, The Praise of the Creator's Glory, Sung by the Starry Heavens to Puny Man. And I like that. How appropriate. And yet, according to David, the Creator elevated man. Man is not so puny as we may have thought. He elevated man above creation, a little lower than God, David said, and crowned with glory and majesty... And it sets you to wonder in reading this psalm and hearing this song, is this about man or is this actually about the Son of Man, Jesus Christ? It's a good question. We'll see. Now, before we get into this, and you know, Wednesday night I shared that, that this is a psalm worth basking in. This is like being out on a summer night, looking up at the stars and just wondering and being in awe. And we want to stay in this psalm for a few minutes. We, we skirted by it on Wednesday night for just that reason. I wanted time for us to stay here. But there are a few things you need to understand as we go into it. And one, the question has been asked, where did David write this? We know it was one of the earliest psalms that he ever wrote. One of the oldest that we have in Scripture. And yet, we romantically think of David lying out on the pastoral hills of Bethlehem, there in the green grass, the sheep nearby, looking up at the stars and and proclaiming this. And that's possible, but another possibility exists as well. A couple of things to understand. The sweet psalmist of Israel, David, as he described himself in old life, he was clearly a spirit-inspired songwriter. 1 Samuel 16, verse 13, says that Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. That was to become king. He was anointed there, and the Bible tells us the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. And I'm one who personally believes that the Psalms of David were written after his anointing, and not before. It's not that he didn't write songs before, he probably did, they just weren't anointed. I have a few of those in my arsenal. Julie, you're the girl of my dreams. Not an anointed song. (laughs) And by the way, I've shared this before. I wrote it in junior high. It didn't work. (laughs) Not anointed. But I believe the psalms that we have were anointed by the Spirit of God. David was an anointed songwriter. And so, that being the case, I don't believe Psalm 8 could have been written before his anointing. It had to be after Sometime after. Now, there were days after David's anointing where he was still in Bethlehem, where he was still a shepherd over his father's sheep. And so there may have been some evenings where there was time for him to write Psalm 8. Maybe it was one of the first, and he was there. But there's another possibility that I think is worth considering. David wrote this psalm, we're told here at the beginning, in the heading for the choir director, on the getith. On the getith. What's the getith? It's not a dental term. The root word of, the, uh, of getith, the word that getith comes from, literally means wine press. And so some commentators, they read it that way, that this psalm is to be sung on the wine press, or it's a psalm of the wine press. And if it's truly a messianic psalm, in other words, if it's about Messiah, if it's about Jesus, then psalm of the wine press would be an interesting title for it. Because Jesus, in becoming a man, was crushed by the full weight of a winepress, that is, of our sin. In fact, what's fascinating to me is under tremendous pressure, on the night of Jesus' betrayal, Luke 22, verse 44, tells us that He sweat great drops of blood. As though His very blood, like wine, was being pressed out of Him, so intense 
was that time for Jesus. You know the name of the garden He was in, right? Gethsemane. If you spoke it in Hebrew, it would be Gat Shimon. And that's telling. Gat Shimon, it means garden of the winepress. The ancient root word is Gat or Gath. There are many who believe, and I'm with them, that the instrument that this psalm was to be sung on was the kachif, an instrument that was created, built, came out of Gath. A Philistine flute, maybe? Or some kind of uh, uh, instrument, a lyre that was built there, created in Gath. And that means David would have had to have picked it up in Gath, which might place the dating of this psalm a little bit later. Remember Gath, we talked about this last week, that city in Philistia, hometown of Goliath. Gath, the place that David ran when he was afraid of Saul and and fearing for his life. Enemy territory. And it was there that David did the whole crazy thing in Philistine country. And so if he picked up the instrument there, learned it there in his short stay in Gath, and came back out, then it would place the writing of the psalm sometime after that, and he would not be in the hills of Bethlehem. No, he would be in the desert. Those cathedrals of dry sand. And yet, the stars would be just as brilliant. If you've ever been out in the desert on a clear night, it's like you can see forever. In either case, whether he was looking up from the hills of Bethlehem or from the the deserts of Judea, David looks up and enraptured by what he sees in the stars, blown away by it, he begins to write, Oh Lord, our Lord! How majestic is your name in all the earth who have displayed your splendor above the heavens. Above the heavens? Listen. The distance from the earth to the sun has been calculated at 93 million miles. So if you're looking to go there, it can take you a while. But I want you to think this through. It's it's absolutely amazing. If, If the distance from earth to the sun was represented by the thickness of one sheet of notebook paper. Okay? So one sheet of notebook paper represents a distance of 93 million miles. And you've got 500 sheets in a ream. So you would need uh, six, well, five or six reams to equal about a foot. I, I can't even calculate that. 93 million miles for each individual sheet up to a foot of notebook paper. That's a long way. The distance from Earth to the closest star, Alpha Centauri, would be represented by a stack of notebook paper, each sheet being 93 million miles. The stack would be 71 feet high. That's to our closest star. The edge of the Milky Way from Earth would be represented by a stack of notebook paper 310 miles high. To go further than that, to the edge of the known universe, the stack of paper would have to grow to at least... 3 million miles high, each sheet representing 93 million miles, up to 3 million miles. That's how far out. I mean, far out. Those of you from the 70s. That's amazing. I mean, that's some serious paperwork, right? I want you to grasp, if we even can, the vastness of the known universe and gain it was created for one reason. One reason. Now, we all love the stars. But some have a tendency to put emphasis on the stars foolishly as if the stars held some kind of wisdom in and of themselves. Or some ancient truths that maybe we could draw out for our lives today or some kind of prophetic power in the created stars. Hey, the Bible says this, Deuteronomy 4.19, Beware not to lift your eyes up to the heavens to see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the host of the heaven, and be drawn away and worship them and serve them, those which the Lord your God has allotted to all the people under the whole heavens. You don't look up to the stars and say, Wow, there's something powerful there other than what they show us of the glory of God. Isaiah 47, verse 13, the Lord said, You are wearied with your many counsels. Let now the astrologers, those who prophesy by the stars, those who predict by the new moon, stand up and save you from what will come upon you. Behold, they have become like stubble. This is God's view of astrology. Stubble. You know, that which we guys shave off around 5 o'clock in the evening. Stubble. Worthless. By the way, 
For those of you who subscribe to the horoscopes in the newspaper, or or those who have friends who do, in spite of, and check this out, in spite of the procession of the Earth's axis, the astrological charts that designate the sign that's supposed to be yours at birth, (laughs) they haven't been updated since the days of Babylon. What does that mean? It means the position of the stars used to assign you an astrological sign, Pisces, Aries, Virgo, whatever, is off by 3,000 years and thus quite lame. (laughs) I mean, gang, there are people who base their lives, their future, their fortune on what they read. I'm a Virgo. Probably not. (laughs) I'm a Pisces. Doubtful. You you don't even know what sign you were born under because it's all off by 3,000 years. Someone's got to get their charts together. But from the bogusness of the horoscopes to the profound darkness and evil of astrological mysticism, mankind misses the point of the created stars, and that is to point to the Creator. Because the the stars, as David said, they display your splendor. The stars are to adorn the glory of God, similar to a king adorning himself in gold and jewels. You know, an earthly king trying to make himself look more impressive and not achieving it. Well, it's different with God. He created the stars. And we look at those and say, wow, glory to God. Those don't adore him. Those, Those are displayed by him. He made them. He put them there. And Psalm 57 verse 10 says, Your loving kindness is great to the heavens, and your truth to the clouds. Be exalted above the heavens, O God, and let your glory be above all the earth. And that's the point. By the way, the Jewish mind in reading the psalm would probably see it different than we do. We read, Who have displayed your splendor above the heavens. Well, the Jews have a perspective of three heavens. The first heaven, you Bible students know this, the first heaven is the atmosphere. It's what we see when we look outside. The blue skies, that which is right around us. The second heaven, to the Jewish mind, is the universe. Stars, planets, those things that we see through telescopes. The third heaven is the place where God lives. And it's not necessarily beyond in terms of physical distance, but it's beyond in terms of of understanding. The place of God's abode is the third heaven. So when David says, you have displayed your splendor above the heavens, he's pointing to the universe, the second heaven. Above these heavens here, he's pointing to this up here. And he's saying, oh, the stars, the planets, the celestial bodies, boy, these are hung to proclaim the majesty and splendor of God. And yet the place of God's abode is above that, beyond that. Now, in a radical redirection of thought, David moves all the way down to infants. Listen to this. Verse 2. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes you have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. So we lift praises high from the mountains to the seas, from the newborn baby's cry to the church on bended knee. There's something amazing David is saying here, and I want you to get it. The cry of an infant at birth is worship. The first sound, why? How, how do you say that? Right? You're just trying to be emotional. No, no. There's a reason. Because the cry of the infant is the sound of created life. And the very first sound of created life magnifies God, glorifies God in its very sound, in its very nature. And this is what David is saying. It's incredible. And he said something else that's amazing. That tiny cry establishes strength. What? Can you imagine an army going into battle with, with megaphones and little tape recordings of our cry rooms? <laughs> Run! The babies are coming! You know? <laughs> and yet, and yet, from the... <laughs> there would be something freaky about that, wouldn't there? No, we're... I'm gone. Yeah. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have established strength. But listen, because of your adversaries, 
to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. Now, now, now what does that mean? Listen. From the cry of the newborn to the cry or the worship of the born again, worshiping God makes the enemy fall silent. Worshiping God shuts the mouth of the enemy. Whether it's that newborn cry or someone who's just for the first time saying, I I believe. I do. I get it. Jesus is real. I believe you, Lord. And the enemy goes, lost another. Can't do anything about this. Silences the enemy. Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 20 says, The Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before Him. Boy, and you know, that's a, a verse we should memorize for all the times we're going, Well, God, I just don't think you're... Blah, 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 blah. You know, be silent. Let the earth be silent. He is God. He is God. He is God. Now this is huge. Come to the part of this psalm that we absolutely know speaks of Jesus Himself. How do we know? Because Jesus connected this verse to Himself. Jesus said, this is talking about me. Matthew chapter 21, verse 14. tells us that blind and lame came to Him in the temple, and He healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that He had done, and the children were shouting in the temple, Hosanna to the Son of David, they became indignant as religious people often will. I added that. And they said to him, Do you hear what these children are saying? And Jesus said, Yeah. Have you never read, Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise for yourself? What? (laughs) Jesus is saying, Hey, the kids know who I am. The kids know. Well, well, who's that? The one whose name is majestic in all the earth. The one about whom David wrote his psalm. That's me. The one for whom praises are ordained ahead of time. Now, someone might say, okay, but if Jesus says out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise for yourself. David didn't say that. David said out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you've established strength. Yeah, because strength and praise are the same thing. How many of you have recognized in life that when you begin to praise the Lord, you get stronger? And that's a huge, huge reason for being here on time on a Sunday morning. (laughs) I wasn't sure how I was going to get that in without the guilt trip, you know. But my friends, listen. Listen, when we come late for worship, we deny strength. In addition to praise to Him. It's not, please, please don't make praise optional. You're denying yourself the very strength that God wants to... It's amazing. We come to worship Him and we get stronger for it. Come to worship the Lord. Man, if you want to leave after worship because Pastor Rick is boring, fine. At least come and praise the Lord. Because you will draw strength from it. It causes the enemy to fall silent. The worship of the Lord causes the worshiper to fill with strength. Now, while that's going on, Jesus ascribes this worship to Himself. Keep this in mind. Go on to verse 3. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him and the Son of Man that you care for him? Third thing to note here. The worship of the Lord causes the worshiper to feel small. Not in a bad way. Not squished. Not like little bugs. But when we begin to worship God like those two teenage boys out there on that summer night, the bigger the universe seems to be, the smaller I felt. The more I recognized the grandeur, the splendor, the awesome power and nature of God, the more I realized... What a little guy I truly am. The Milky Way galaxy is 100,000 light years long. That's 6 trillion miles, or roughly half our national debt. (laughs) (laughs) Traveling at the speed of light, 186,000 miles per second, it would take you 100,000 years to get from one end of the Milky Way to the other end. (laughs) 
And there are at least 100,000 million galaxies like ours. And each one of them with a minimum of 100,000 light years distance from one end to the other. (laughs) The farthest galaxy we know of is 100 billion light years away from us. And it's moving currently away from us. The universe is expanding. It's moving away from us at a rate of 200,000 miles an hour. By the time we're done, the furthest galaxy will be 200,000 miles further away. What, what does it take to get a galaxy moving? What kind of power? I mean, perspective. I'm a who down in Whoville, gang. What does it take to move an entire galaxy? I can't even barely get my kids out the door for school in the morning. And God is moving galaxies with His fingers which you put in place. When I consider the work of your, your heavens, the work of your fingers, it's just, it's staggering to consider the power of the one, the sheer energy that God exerts to do all of this. But just when you thought God couldn't be any more vast, couldn't be any greater, couldn't be any more distant from you, listen, David said, what is man that you take thought of him? Take thought. It's the Hebrew word zakar, and it means to be mindful of. What is man that that you are mindful of him? David gets struck by an intense thought. Awesome and splendor and nature and glory and power and the universe created by his fingers. and, And you think about me? Can you comprehend this possibility? That God has a mindful of you. He is mindful. He's thinking. Do you think He was unaware of you this week? God was perhaps detached from my personal situation, my trauma, my ache, my difficulty. Yeah, God was, He's distant. He's not where I need Him to be. He's uncaring. Hey, God had a mind full of you this week. David goes on, and if that's not enough, what is the man that you would be mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? And that phrase care for is pakad in the Hebrew, and it means to visit. Which is one of the reasons why, by the way, I don't believe that this verse in saying the son of man is talking about Jesus. Because Jesus is the one who did the visiting to the son of man, to the daughters of man, to you and to me. He was the visitor, not the visited Can you accept that God would travel such a distance as the known universe to visit you? And He did. It's the message of the incarnation of Jesus. The fact that He came. Isaiah 7.14 It was prophesied. Therefore the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and will bear a son. And people go, ah, that's not a sign. Because the word virgin there means maiden and any maiden can have a child. Big deal. What's the deal with that? Hey, listen. It goes on to say, and she will call his name Emmanuel, God with us. That's a sign. I believe in the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. But I also believe that that child was fully God and fully man. And the Word became flesh, John 1.14, and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. David says, what is man? And then he answers it, apparently important to God. And we're starting to get into what I think a lot of us don't believe. The significance of you to the Father. The amount that you truly matter to Him. Oh, the worship of the Lord causes the enemy to fall silent, and the worship of the Lord that causes the worshiper to fill with strength and to feel small. However, the worship of the Lord is where the worshiper finds significance. It is in the place where we're recognizing His grandeur, His glory, His splendor, that suddenly we say, and He thinks about me. You know, there are a lot of people in the world who are not thinking about you. And you probably could draw back in your life and say, there are people in my own life who didn't care for me. Perhaps some of you have parents who never cared for you and you've spent your whole life wondering, what does it feel like to be cared for? Listen, 
Your Father cares deeply about you. You matter incredibly to Him. And this is why Psalm 8 is called by some, and I would agree, the exaltation of man. Does that title bother anybody else? Because when I first wrote it down, I went, I'm not sure if I can call this teaching the exaltation of man. It sounds so man-centered, so humanistic, but gang, listen, there's no other title for this psalm that fits. The exaltation of man. Now don't get your spiritual wires crossed. Our sense of worth is born and raised not in self-exaltation, but in worshipful recognition that God exalts man. That our Creator is the one who exalts. And that everything glorious, as we sang earlier, is due to Him. If there's glory in me, and there is, believe it or not, it's because of Him. If there's goodness in me, if there's holiness in me, if there's righteousness in me, it's not because I've worked it out. It's because of Him. And it's because He is glorious and holy and righteous. David said in verse 6, You make man, him, to rule over the works of your hands. You put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and beasts of the field and birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and whatever passes through the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Now listen, there is prophetic significance in this psalm. Amazingly. But it may not be what you think. Some have tried to say, well, this psalm is messianic. That the Son of Man here is Jesus. And I don't believe it is. But I think you might want to note something here. Some might say, well, didn't Jesus ascribe this psalm to Himself? Didn't you just say that? No, I didn't. I said He ascribed verse 2 to Himself. Verse 2 is about Jesus. And Jesus took that verse and applied it out of the mouths of infants and nursing babes. Praise comes, and it's, it's for me, because I'm God. But the whole psalm is not about Him. I have in my Bible a line drawn right below uh, verse 3. Because the first half of this psalm, verses 1 through 3, describe God's eminence, His splendor, His glory, His grandeur. The last half of this psalm, verses 4 through 8, describe man's exaltation by God. Don't get it wrong. Exaltation is not worship. Exaltation is lifting up. To be exalted is to be lifted up. And that's exactly what God intends in every life of a person who follows Him. To lift you up. To put you in a a better place. As sons and daughters, not just of man, but of God. Belonging to Him. Part of His family. Redeemed, restored. And called to a holy purpose in our lives. So... So you don't think verse 5 is describing Jesus in the Incarnation. No, I don't. And if we miss this, we will miss the whole uplifting power of this psalm. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 2. I love that that Tom was in Hebrews this morning at at, uh, communion time. Because what he said dials directly into what we're talking about. And Tom and I didn't compare notes. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 6. The whole first two, three chapters of Hebrews, the writer, I believe it's Paul, is writing there to express the true nature of Jesus Christ as God. Not just as underling to God, but as truly God. And he says this, follow this with me, verse 6 of chapter 2. One is testified somewhere, saying, What is man that you remember him? Or the son of man that you're concerned about him? And we go, oh, okay, Psalm 8. I know where we are. Verse 7. You have made him for a little while lower than the angels, and you have crowned him with glory and honor, and have appointed him over the works of your hands. You've put all things in subjection under his feet. Now listen, the Hebrew writer draws back to Psalm 8 to express something profound. But you may have noticed he doesn't quote it exactly. He doesn't quote it word for word. Why? I believe the Holy Spirit is giving us more information. I believe there's a little more understanding, fresh insight into what's really going on here beyond what David said. Look back at verse 7. Hebrews 2.7 You made him for a little while lower than the angels and have crowned him with glory and honor. This was God's original arrangement for mankind. What do you mean? That we were made, first of all, a little lower than the angels. 
Why does he say angels instead of God? Well, the word there in the Hebrew that David used is Elohim. You may recognize that. Elohim is the plural form of the word for God. El is singular. Elah is two. And Elohim is at least three or more. So when you talk about God our Creator, you have to say Elohim if you're saying God because He's three or more. The Trinity. But we were made a little lower than God. The Hebrew writer says than angels. Well, he's quoting out of the Septuagint, but he's also quoting something specific for us to understand. And that is that as human beings, we were created just below the angels. But notice, notice this. Lower than the angels, secondly, for a little while. For a little while. Psalm 8 doesn't say for a little while. It says you've made him a little lower. The Hebrew writer says you've made him for a little while lower. The psalmist, David, is indicating distance. You've made him a little lower. But the Hebrew writer, Paul, is indicating time. You've made him lower for a little while. This is really cool. We are right now in a position lower than the angels, but only for a little while. What? We're going to be in a position, listen, above the angels after a little while. How is that? 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 3, Paul throws this little gem out there. Do you not know that we will judge angels? Huh? Yeah. What does that mean? Well, we know the Bible also refers to children specifically having guardian angels. Maybe it was that time you fell off your bike and you're going to judge them for it. (laughs) Gabe, where were you, man? Did you see the dent in the car? My dad made me pay for that for years. What does it really mean that we're going to judge the angels? And theologically, you might jot this down. I don't know. (laughs) I don't know, but it's big. It's big. It's a drawing back to a place of authority. Now listen to this. He goes on, the Hebrew writer, and says, He made us lower for a little, but gave us lordship over creation. Crowned him with glory and honor. Appointed him over the works of your hands and put all things in subjection under his feet. And that was the original position. Adam and Eve in the garden, that was the original call. Genesis 1.26, God said, Let's make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and the cattle and over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God's original plan, intention for mankind. And it didn't go so well because of mankind. So what happened? Well, a few years went by. God said, we're going to have to uh, clean house. And He brought the flood. After the flood, in Genesis chapter 9, verse 1, He starts again with Noah. And he said, it says, God blessed Noah and his sons. Genesis 9, 1. And He said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. But something changed. Listen. He now says, and the fear of you and the terror of you will be on every beast of the earth and on every bird of the sky. And with everything that creeps on the ground, all the fish of the sea into your hand, they are given, but they're going to fear you now. Before, that wasn't the case. Now it is. Well, why is that? Every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. I give it all to you as I gave the green plant hamburgers, hot dogs, flank steak. Prior to the flood, I believe mankind were vegetarian. Not because I'm a vegan or Vegemite or whatever. Prior to the flood, see, the Lord gave all the plants and fruit trees and all those things for food. It wasn't until after the flood that God said, all right, go eat some meat. (laughs) Thanks, God! But you know what? After the flood, things got a little more brutal on planet Earth. Because suddenly the original arrangement of things shifted and was not as it was before. The decay of the lordship of man had already started. The decay. Why do people get sick if there's a God? We are in decay. Why is there unexplained death if God's around? Because we're in decay. I I have a beautiful uh, madrona tree in the back part of our house. The biggest madrona tree on our property. It's just absolutely gorgeous. And two of the main trunks coming out of it are looking pretty sick. I'm afraid I'm going to lose this thing, which bums me out. 
because I really like it. It's in decay. It's not going to last. We are in a, a state now where things are not what they were. In fact, the Hebrew writer says, there it is. Hebrew writer said in verse 8, he said in subjecting, in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him, but now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. Something changed. The original order where everything was subjected to Adam no longer is the case. You can be attacked by a wild animal. It's not subjected to you anymore. You're going to have to fight. Adam, you're going to have to till the ground now like you never did before. It's going to give you weeds and thistles. It's going to be a problem. There is decay and a curse in the world. In other words, we were made lower for a little while, given lordship, but we lost it. We lost it. We had it. That authority. Let me put it to you this way. Well, who lost the position of authority? Mankind or Jesus? It wasn't Jesus. Who just before his ascension said, All authority on heaven in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Matthew twenty eight, eighteen. All authority. Well, how much authority? All authority. He's not lacking any whatsoever. Does this sound like Jesus lost authority? There was only a brief period of a time, a few hours, where he gave up that authority in subjecting himself to the cross. But, and don't miss this, understand, absolute power and authority was returned to Jesus upon His resurrection. Ephesians 1.21 says, He raised Christ from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. What does that mean? It means Jesus has absolute authority now and then. He is the ultimate authority. And we're told He put all things in subjection under His feet, gave Him His head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him, who fills all in all. But listen, and here's the key, verse 9. <laughs> I keep closing Hebrews, I'm back. Verse 9. But we do see Him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus. This is in contrast to man. See what the Hebrew writer is opening up, understanding for us here, that the Son of Man was human beings, humanity. But we do see, in contrast to that, we see Him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God He might taste death for everyone. That's Jesus. So, Pastor, you're saying Psalm 8 isn't about Jesus? I'm saying it is. The first half. Describing the eminence of God, yes, that is about Jesus. The second half, describing what is man that you think of him, the son of man that you care for him, is not about Jesus. Hold on to your seats. It is about you. And this is what we have trouble believing. This is what we need to get. And this should blow our minds. God, who is eminent, please dial in. God, whose very name is majestic in all the earth. God, whose splendor is displayed above the heavens. Paul says, Philippians 2, God emptied Himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Why? Listen. So that you would be exalted. So that you would be lifted up. We have to retrain our minds here, gang, because there has been something that has been propagated, and it goes back, I think, to Puritanism and maybe back further. But this idea that being a follower of Jesus Christ is, is about shuffling into church with your shoulders bent and your head bowed low. Feeling insignificant and trashed and lowly and pathetic. And that is not the child of God that we are called to be. Cheryl and I were watching... Uh, okay, I'm going to confess this to you. Jane Eyre. Ninth 
1944 black and white version of Jane Eyre. And she picked it up at the library and brought it home. And she's like, will you watch this with me? I'm like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> Only if I can take the boys to see Iron Man first. You know? <laughs> Jane Eyre. So we're watching it last night. And... If you've never read the book, and I won't take a long time with this, but this little girl, Jane Eyre, loses her parents. She's with her aunt. Her aunt's nasty and horrible and terrible. She gets taken from there to this place called Lowood School. And at Lowood School, she is going to be retrained by the headmaster, this stark, mean, just... I I wanted to go into the TV and just pound on him because he's so brutal. Mean guy. And his whole purpose is to humiliate her so that she will know her place before God. I mean, it's just awful. And I'm watching this after having read Psalm 8. And I'm thinking, wow, how the church, at least historically in times, has missed it. The exaltation of man. That Jesus didn't die on the cross to make you feel bad. That God didn't send His Son into the world to die for the world so that we would be mealy-mouthed, pathetic, paltry little people. The exaltation of man to lift you up. You should never walk out of church going, Ugh, I'm just so terrible. <laughs> Looking at yourself in the mirror, I stink. I know Pastor Rick said so. <laughs> I know he said he stinks too, but I stink more. And trust me, there are days I can tell you, no, you don't. (laughs) What are you saying? Listen, Paul says, we don't miss this. We are being transformed from glory to glory. To glory. You are not coming to faith in Jesus. And listen, if there's anyone here who's not a Christian this morning, the idea of becoming a Christian is not so that you can become lowly and pathetic. No. It's so that you can be exalted to the place of glory by the glory of God Himself. That's what He wants for you. To call you sons and daughters. Okay, so how do you keep from becoming arrogant? Very simply. Listen. Lift up your heads, sons and daughters of man, through Jesus Christ. You become sons and daughters of God. And because of that, you'll be glorified by His glory, to His glory, and for His glory. Remember last week we were talking about repentance, and we said that that repentance was, in, in truth, it wasn't about making myself small, it was about declaring the mercy of God. That even in my act of repentance, I'm declaring worshipful statements of His loving kindness, and His goodness, and His mercy. That's what happens when I repent. Saying, God loves me. In the same way, in being glorified, so great is the Father's love for you that He wants to exalt you, to lift you up in His glory, by His glory, for His glory. Now please understand this. It is not so that we can sit back and think about how glorious we are. See, that's the other wrong side of the coin. Oh, we're good. We are glorious people, and we're going to gather together, and we're going to shut the door, because we don't want any of those stakers from the world coming in here. Because this is where glory happens, right? And we are of the glory. No, no. It is not so we can sit back. In fact, our exaltation by the Lord is not even for us. What do you mean? 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 11. To this end, we also pray for you always, that our God will count you worthy of your calling and fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus will be glorified in you and you in Him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Even your exaltation exalts and glorifies God more. Let me put it this way. If you deny the fact that God is glorifying you, you are denying the glory of God. That's how serious this is. Oh, I know God loves everybody else, but He doesn't love me. Really? So God's not loving? Why? I get that God's exalting other people, but He can't possibly exalt me. Oh, because He doesn't have the power? If you reject the notion that God wants to lift you up, you are rejecting that God is capable of lifting you up. 
You're withdrawing worship and praise from Him. It is, it is time, brothers and sisters in Jesus, that we stand up as exalted, a royal priesthood. I, I know we're sinners. I know we have the sin nature. But I think we spend a little too much time sitting in the sin and wallowing. You've got to go to church and get this off of me. God is saying, hey, hey, remember the cross? I took care of that. Now be a royal priest. Stand up and exalt the Lord in your exaltedness. Glorify Him because He's glorifying you. Let people see the confidence, the boldness, the joy, the power that comes from the Lord because He's doing this in your life. And I absolutely believe if we walked that way, we would see people getting saved right and left. Why does someone want to become a Christian if it's just about being pathetic? I wouldn't. Would you? If you had it to do over, if someone said, yeah, go to church and you can be lame too. (laughs) Sign me up. But to be glorified, to be transformed after the likeness of our God who made us in His image. Wow. That's huge. And that is, I believe, what David was getting at. So let me ask you a couple of questions here. Do you believe that's real? Do you really believe that the glory of God is such that He could glorify you? Let me ask you something else. Do you believe Jesus is coming soon? I love seeing the smiles when I ask that question. If I believe that what we've talked about is legitimate and real, if I believe that Jesus Christ is coming quickly, exalted man, exalted woman, what are we going to do about it? Truly, what are we going to do? I said first hour, and I've told you all this. I have a vision for this church. I really do. A vision of harvest. A vision of not two or three or five or ten people coming to salvation in Jesus Christ, but hundreds. And I'm realizing something. That for that to happen, for God to entrust that kind of harvest to this fellowship, we're going to have to be ready. He doesn't bring a huge harvest and you have one guy with a pitchfork going, I don't know what to do with this. If we are glorified saints, if we are a royal priesthood, and if we are workers being called to a harvest, then perhaps it's time we better start practicing for the day the harvest comes. God wants, I am convinced, wants to prepare this body for harvest, even perhaps before Jesus comes. I'm not saying His coming is going to be held back by it. He may still come this afternoon. But He wants to prepare this fellowship to receive a harvest. I'm curious, anyone want to? Does that sound like fun? It sounds great to me. From glory to glory, that's the invitation of the Father. And if we will believe that we are glorified saints, then we will live that way, and I guarantee you the harvest will begin to come. You can't help it. People will see the glory of God, and they will want the glory of God, and we'll be ready for it as they come. So I'm going to have the worship team come up and lead a song. And I'm going to invite you to come forward if... You have never believed in your life. Listen to me. If you have never believed in your life that you are supposed to be exalted in the way that David described it, in the way that Jesus described it, in the way that Paul described it, exalted, glorified by God, if that's something you've had trouble believing and accepting, I invite you to come forward and believe it today. What is man that you take thought of him? The son of man that you care for him? O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Let's stand up, and if you need to come forward, do so right up in the front row.